welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here today with uh, Rob Henderson. Uh, you might know him from our TV and movie reviews. He's uh, studying for his PhD, about to finish at Cambridge. Um, and Zach Goldberg, who you also probably know is a, a former fellow at CSPI, uh, who has moved up to uh, uh, the big leagues and is now a, a research fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Um, and we're here to talk about uh, Zach's uh, new paper for the Manhattan Institute, Is Defunding the Police a Luxury Belief? Analyzing White versus Non-White Democrats' Attitudes on Depolicing. Um, and Rob is here because he is the uh, founder, the inventor, the uh, creator, uh, the artist behind the idea of luxury beliefs. Uh, so Rob, before we dive into Zach's paper, can you sort of uh, discuss uh, what they are and how the idea came to you and and you know where where people can read more about it? Uh, yeah, so so I define luxury beliefs as ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And the idea came about, well, initially, uh, when I arrived as an undergrad at Yale a few years ago, so this was back in 2015, uh, and right away I had noticed that many of the political and social views of my classmates on campus and my peers were very much at odds with the views of the people I grew up around. You know, I grew up in sort of poor and working class neighborhoods in California. I joined the military later on. And so, you know, those two environments were much different than what I was seeing at Yale in terms of what, what people believed and the views that they espoused. And then, you know, throughout my uh, experience at college, I was reading these sort of old school texts in sociology by Thorsten Babelin, The Theory of the Leisure Class. Pierre Baudu's book, uh, Distinction, uh, was it, it's called, it's like, the subtitles, a critique of the judgment of taste or something along those lines. It's, it's, it's an older book and, uh, Paul Fussell's book on class in America. And then later, by the time I got to Cambridge, I had read some more recent work in social psychology, these empirical studies on the drive for status and who has the strongest, uh, motivation to attain status and so these these texts, along with my observations, sort of gave rise to this uh, concept. I wrote a Twitter thread in 2019, you know, sort of outlining the idea, uh, and it got picked up by some bigger accounts. And then an editor at the New York Post asked me to to write a short piece on it, which I did. And then later, Quillette asked me to sort of expand on this idea. And in the piece in Quillette, I, I cite a lot of the sort of relevant academic research and uh, flesh out the concept in more detail. And I've also written about it in my Substack as well. And yeah, to my knowledge, uh, Zach's paper here is the first uh, uh, scholarly treatment of this of this concept of, of luxury beliefs. Yeah. So, I mean, one question I, I ask as somebody with a background in public choice uh, theory uh, is when you say, um, uh, you know, the upper class don't suffer the consequences of their beliefs and the lower class do. Well, I mean, ultimately nobody suffers the consequences of their beliefs right um we suffer the consequences of our actions uh so you can vote any way you want um but you know poor people don't have to suffer the consequences of either so it isn't it seems to me that like it's like uh you know it's it's um i don't know i i think the idea of like uh suffering the consequences is sort of slippery how do you how do you sort of uh how do you think about that yeah i mean the the the, the milieu of that that that's upper class, the sort of chattering classes create, I mean, they do give rise to policies and shifting norms and, gra I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes gradually and sometimes more rapidly, uh, they can, they can sort of undermine a lot of the cultural guardrails that disproportionately impact 
lower class people. I mean, I think the, the defund the police idea is an obvious one uh, that that happened more rapidly. I think a, 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 an example where it happened more gradually would be with monogamy and marriage. And, you know, I've, I've discussed this in other venues and written about this, about how marriage across the social classes uh, the stability of marriage was roughly equal, uh, regardless of wealth in America in 1960. And by 2005, it had diverged sharply such that, uh, you know, upper class communities, marriage, stable two parent families, kids are being raised by both of their birth parents is overwhelming the norm. And in working class communities and poor communities, it's it's uh, becoming vanishingly rare. So initially, uh, you know, these start out as beliefs. They start out as these sort of fashionable opinions that people express. And, you know, they, they do uh, gradually get implemented and, and can change society. Yeah. The I mean, another thing that I, I think of is that basically, you know, if you look at like these police shootings and like, why is there, you know, why is there hostility between police uh, and certain inner city communities? It's not like it's, you know, when, when, when a uh, criminal gets shot by the police, it's not like it's the, you know, the rich elites who, who start by coming out and protesting and rioting and so forth. It's the people, you know, the poor people in these communities. And so it seems like their, their actions are the ones, you know, causing uh, most of the hostility here. And that's leading to a lot of the uh, bad policies that lead to bad outcomes i mean so isn't sort of you know aren't, aren't these people are they are taking action that they are suffering the, the consequences of their actions well it's both right i think that there is this sort of a trickle round effect where often uh, uh bad ideas can start at the bottom and gradually work their way up and then eventually uh, uh the more affluent members of society champion in those views but the only way that they can sort of percolate and spread and and become actually implemented into policy is if the you know the elites or whatever you want to call them uh, are the ones who adopt the views and are the ones who who have the most influence in society. Like if if a bunch of poor people want something and the elites don't want to do it, they don't want to defund the police or redirect resources or something. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and so it, you know in this instance, I, I would say that that uh, educated affluent members of society actually bear most of the responsibility for what's happening and, and poor people like yeah maybe they have some bad ideas but they ultimately don't have the social power to implement them the way that elites do yeah so i mean so why say luxury beliefs i mean you could, you could just say that uh sometimes elites have bad ideas elites are the only ones that matter for implementing policy and um because they're elites they can uh they can uh, wall themselves off. I don't know if, on average, they're more likely to have views that harm the poor. I don't know. Maybe they maybe they are, but it seems to me like you can find you can find examples going in uh, both directions. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've cited different work showing. I mean, the, so the defund the police idea was just proportionately held. At least the the, the surveys that I was reading in 2020 and 2021 by the highest income brackets. Uh, if you you know if you ask people their opinions on on marriage and monogamy, uh, people who are more educated. Uh, tend to to say that uh, uh, what a two parent home is, is is less essential or not essential for for raising a child. Uh, drug legalization is disproportionately uh, a view held by educated people relative to less educated people. So yeah, I mean a lot of these views. I mean there there may be some some uh, views that run in the opposite direction. But but again, I think that these like I, I use this term luxury beliefs. It's almost a an analogy to luxury goods, right? Where in the past historically, uh, affluent people demonstrated their status through material goods uh and today i think they more often do it with with uh their their beliefs and you know th these are sort of costly signals of where you went to college what kinds of uh, uh media you consume 
uh, whether you're reading the right op-eds and following the right trendsetters, you know, these are sort of uh, indicators of, of your position in society now uh, in a way that that luxury be- or luxury goods in the past were. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that uh, the idea that elites matter, I think, is is right. Uh, I think the idea that elites have had very bad ideas and they've they've uh, they've had wor- a bigger impact on the lower classes than the upper classes uh, is is also is also right. Um, okay, yeah, okay. So that's that's the theory. Are you going to make it into like say New York Post and Colette? Are you going to make it into a book or an article or, or something? Or an academic article? Yeah, or something? I'll, I'll probably write uh, a book at some point uh, if things go well. Um, I would like to to expand it out into a book and and explore the idea further. Uh, unless, unless Zach keeps writing papers, <laughs> no, undermining no, it. No, no, no. Yeah, the whole, the whole point, uh, the whole yeah. point of this paper is to get you to start thinking uh, about elaborating on the theory more and revising it and, and coming up with predictions, predictions that could be tested. Uh, and, and I should mention that what my test of your theory is only in the context of deep policing, and there's still a lot more work yeah. to be done in this context. But I'm saying is that the idea is to derive uh, and uh, to be. To be sure, um, because you haven't formally written about it, I was trying to, I, in some ways, had to derive my own implications, empirical implications, you know? I think maybe um, a lot of the people that followed uh, your theorizing on, on this issue uh, maybe have came away with the assumption uh, that, well, I, I think they have misconceptions p- potentially um, about it, that, you know, these elites that are endorsed these beliefs don't actually believe them. I mean, they hold them well, consciously knowing I'm only doing it for mm. social status. All right. I'm only doing it because I want to, you know, position myself or project that I am on the right side of history. Meanwhile, I don't actually really care about it. So I don't, I don't think that's what you're saying, but I think this, the limousine liberal stereotype, which kind of has does intersect in some ways with luxury beliefs you know, limousine liberal, I mean, that's kind of a pejorative term to refer to liberals that's been around probably for decades about people that, I mean, that kind of are politicians that advocate for virtuous policies, you know, that, you know, while, while knowing full well that they won't have to, to live under those policies. Uh, so there is some overlap there, but um, what's kind of, I guess, son, uh, there's some uncertainty over whether those that hold luxury beliefs actually have a some commitment to them you know actually believe them to be the case a good representation or approximation of reality or what a potential reality that could come about as a consequence of those beliefs versus just being really cynical i'm just going for status here you know i don't don't really (laughs) i I know my beliefs are probably half-baked but whatever you know it sounds great you know on on social media and i'm getting a lot of likes so (laughs) uh yeah you're you're right you're you're you don't test i mean if they really believe anything right you can't you yeah. don't prove that in your in your paper oh no i mean my well i i guess my my um one test of that or i guess one indirect testing of that is to see whether people maintain those beliefs as the costs of holding or the consequences of holding those uh, beliefs uh um uh, you know rise so for instance uh, you would expect that uh those that endorse defund the police would be more likely to hold that belief in an area that is has low rates of crime victimization versus rates with high uh no but that doesn't that doesn't make sense that doesn't make sense unless you are the person who actually is the decision unless you're the mayor of the town that doesn't make sense because the cost of one person holding one opinion is zero in a low crime neighborhood and it's zero i mean unless you're like you know walking 
behind dark alleys and you know uh uh you know just doing stupid things but the, the, the that you know that that still doesn't get at anything you could still delude yourself it, it doesn't it does that's that's not a test of the theory you know, all I have to work with in this data set are measures of, of support. You're, you're right. And I, I mean, other measures of, you know, who they voted for. Um, and it is true that uh, those that support defund the police, I mean, this isn't including the paper, but they're more likely to donate to uh, different, uh, uh, you know, election races, uh, you know, and they, they definitely have, uh, you know, higher levels of political um, engagement. And the point is, is that these are the people that uh, are likely to have influence on those that enact such policies. And we have instances of cities around the country actually defunding the police. Crime obviously soared, and some of them are backpedaling. But the point is, is that there was some support. I mean, maybe not representative of everybody on the ground, but the people that actually are able to get in touch with decision makers actually have, uh, you know, uh, a connection to them and actually influence them are, I mean, having those beliefs, it's, it's, it's yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. You could report believing in a survey, but what does it actually matter? Well, policies have changed and shifted in a number of these locales. Uh, well, and- yeah, but in the collective, you have to you have to specify what you're talking about. So me as an individual, so like, yes, in the collective, it matters, right? Oh, yeah, me, one person ways. holding one belief doesn't matter. You're right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the point. That, that, for, for it to be like in you know the cost rising to you, it has to matter. That, that's that's that, that's the sort of that, that's that's the sort of point. But but whatever. I think I think we're um, well. I you mean, know, I, 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 you're I, right. But I mean, it is interesting that I mean, all other groups <laughs> apart from white people, as you as the cost quote unquote increase, as high crime, as levels of violent crime increase in a at a zip code. You see decreases in support or decreases in people's propensity or, excuse me, non-white Democrats' propensity to support these beliefs, whereas whites either show increases in so, support. So, so, Zach, just to be clear, uh, so non-white Democrats in more dangerous locales are less likely to support defund the police than non-white Democrats in, in high-crime locales, right? Yes. Is that right? Yeah, so, yeah. So, because that, I mean, you could say, like, they're the ones who are actually more likely maybe to experience the costs of such beliefs. Like they're sort of behaving in almost the way you would predict. Uh, whereas right. white Democrats you're finding was that, and yeah, feel free to, I just yeah. want to make sure that we're getting this right here, that white Democrats, it doesn't matter whether they live in a low crime or high crime locale, their support for defund the police sort of remains the same or not significantly different based on zip code. And and you controlled for um, socioeconomic status and yeah, it, things, it, right? once you so. could hear, once you control for socioeconomic status and demographic backgrounds, white in low crime, uh, you know, areas, low crime zip codes, um, you know, white Democrats and non-white Democrats are virtually equally likely to support these beliefs. Okay, now once yeah. once you go, you know, once you vary or you increase, uh, you know, statistically increase uh, violent crime, uh, you see precipitous declines among uh, non-white groups, and you see. Um, you know, uh, general stability, if not, you know, uh, slight increases among uh, the endorsement rates of, of white Democrats. Um, I guess um, I think you and I talked like a little bit about this in uh, in in, a, in our group chat, but I I, I would like to, and, and I don't I don't think this was in the data or or if it is, yeah, it'd be really interesting. Would be like actual rates of victimization because, like, I mean, you know, I probably you know, everyone here is aware and maybe many of the viewers are aware that actually, you know, the 
you know, the, the, the victims of crime tend to be disproportionately non-white perpetrators as well. And, you know, like the like white, I mean, if you're a white Democrat in a high crime area, like I, I, I just want to know, like, are you actually more likely to be a victim of a crime than a white person in a low crime area? I, maybe a little bit. I mean, is it significantly more likely? Um, yeah, I, that would be something that I'd be interested in looking at, you know, because because, yeah, maybe maybe you see like crime going up. But if it's not actually hurting you or the people you spend most of your time around, then does it really, you know, how much does it really matter to you? Yeah, it, the data does show. I mean, I didn't uh, report this uh, in, in the analysis, but the data in that data set does show that white Democrats uh, that live in higher crime, um, you know, zip codes, uh they do tend to report higher levels of self-reported victimization in the past year. Now, what types of crimes oh, are those? Right. I yeah. don't know. But um, yeah. there is that uh, there is that relationship. And you, you are right in the sense that, um, and this is why it was important to look at, uh, you know, uh, local crime, because uh, poor whites, you know, poor whites in the bottom, white Democrats in the bottom, uh, you know, income brackets, you know, they still are exposed to significantly lower levels of violent crime than a similarly situated non-white Democrat. So only controlling for socioeconomic factors is not going to be able to account for that uh, differential, uh, you know, risk, Uh, you know, because even poor whites are still less likely to be exposed to crime. So Uh, you have to... there's a conflation here because the if you're a liberal white Democrat who lives in a high crime area, you've select you've selected into that environment. I mean, when, I, when I look at a- Asians who live in high crime environment, a lot of them are living, you know, in, cl- in these urban centers. They're recent immigrants, so they still they still have the urban experience. So they're not that unusual. You think about the kind of white person who moves to like you know uh, South Side. It's a choice, Chicago. right? Well, the white people's a choice. If you go to Chinatown in San Francisco, yeah. like they're like that's not their first choice. It's kind of they're they're compelled to live there for yeah and you can't just control and say oh you know they're like yeah they're they're very weird the people who really really sought out that area yeah Um, and and that's why when you don't control for anything what you see is a significant positive relationship between zip code crime and endorsement among white democrats meaning if you don't control for anything you're going to see a positive relationship the more violent crime there is the more uh, a white democrat is going to support uh you know uh these policies now um that, like you said, appears to be driven by selection. You know, the fact that progressive types are, you know, white progressives are more likely to, uh, you know, to live in these locales. Um, and uh, once you control for things, you know, the differences between low crime and high crime uh, largely uh, evaporate. But I, I think this gets into an interesting conversation we could have uh, about the possibility that maybe people that, you know, um, whose beliefs are follow from their ideological commitments and their ideological uh, frameworks that they uh, live by, you know, whether they are uh, less sensitive in some ways to uh, some of the consequences of, of their beliefs, because they ultimately believe that they are doing a good thing and that, you know, uh, this ultimately is going to lead to a more just uh, society. And I, I'm wondering what you think about the, the possibility that, uh, you know, some people that are ideologically committed might be more willing to pay a cost, even a modest cost, such as, okay, potentially greater, uh, slightly an uptick in crime, you know, which I may or not have to suffer. And that's just, that's a price worth paying, uh, you know, because I believe that ultimately this has to be done for to achieve a better society. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about yeah, yeah. ideological conviction allowing people to maybe tolerate 
you know, uh, sacrifice or costs. Um, yeah, is this uh, this was the the group based moral ideology theory? I think you mentioned this in your in your Twitter thread that well, yeah, it this goes sort of beyond, costly commitments. Yeah, it goes beyond yeah. that. If I don't know if you know um, Scott Atran and a number of Jeremy Jim just yeah. uh, you know the number of um, you know years ago they did a bunch of work on sacred uh, sacred values and how you know people uh, don't easily make material trade offs. You know they don't easily trade their uh, a lot of the work was done in, you know, the Israeli-Palestine conflicts, but, you know, for, you know, a trillion dollar in whatever, in, in international aid, I'm not going to just give up the Western Wall. You know, I really believe in that Western Wall. I'm willing to pay a high cost to preserve that Western Wall, yeah. even though the significance of Western Wall is really just, uh, well, I guess it's cultural, yeah. but a lot of it's religious. Bill Tetlock's <laughs> done some interesting work on this, too, the sort of taboo trade-offs. Yes, yes. Certain things, uh, it goes above and beyond the economic factors. There's something, it's it's sort of not, your values aren't for sale, something along those lines. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And and I guess, you know, your work, I guess in a way I'm inclined to believe it. And in a way it's an interesting, uh, I guess it can be integrated in some sense with Richard's point which is that if you're self-selecting into those areas, like if you're an affluent white person and you're moving into a high crime area, like you are probably uh, politically or ideologically unusual in some way. And you're willing to put up with the increased possibility of, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical that there it, there's an increased likelihood of them being targeted for violent crimes. And if it is, it's, it's, it's a minuscule, but probably more likely to be victims of sort of uh, theft and burglary and those kinds of things. And, you know, like, well, there's that, there's that sort of uh, that, that funny tweet going around with, uh, I think it was a year or two ago with Seth Rogen, where he's just like, yeah, you live in a big city and sometimes your car gets broken into, man. What's the big deal? You know, like that's sort of the exactly. mindset of a lot of the people who self-select to live there. Um, yeah, I, and, and to your point earlier about uh, the, the belief that I've seen this happen. And, you know, once you kind of coin a phrase or something or come up with an idea, it sort of takes on a life of its own. I didn't necessarily, I mean, maybe I, I worded my Quillette piece a little too strongly. Uh, when I wrote it, I, you know, I, you sometimes get carried away to, to some extent, but you know, wh whether or not these, these they're, they're cynically held, whether there's this sort of strategic conscious motive of if i say this thing it's going to raise my status and who cares about the poor people who have to suffer uh i think it's 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 a little bit more nuanced than that where you know you're you can sincerely hold a view and also uh on some level it will understand that it will raise your status like those two things are kind of intertwined right like there's the, i guess that's a sort of a folk psychological theory where you know we have we have our true authentic beliefs that we express because they uh reflect how we really feel and then there are these other set of beliefs that we have and we only express those because they raise our status and we don't really believe them but actually i think with with luxury beliefs and defund the police like there's they're, they're actually uh intertwined such that uh you are authentically expressing your view, but the side effect is you're raising your status and maybe you don't mind that so much. And as your status is raised, you kind of continue to say those things, sincerely believing them. But at the same time, it's also nice to, to increase your reputation in the eyes of others. Uh, and, you know, the sort of outcome of it, it is it, it does align with my sort of basic definition of luxury beliefs is it is raising your status and it does have disproportionately negative effects on the lower classes, whether they're sincerely held or not is sort of beside the point. Uh, but, but I, I, I think I agree with what you're saying here that they, for the most part are sincerely held, but you guys have probably had these conversations in private, maybe in public too. I mean, where you will, I've spoken with people who say things in public 
and in private they will acknowledge that it's bullshit and that is like a sort of a cynically held you know cynical version of the the luxury beliefs idea are, the, are all these people really. academics or are there some who are not academics uh uh they're academics but they're also people who work in tech and finance and all of the sort of fields that ambitious uh people work See, in I've, never heard, I've heard people say oh i can't say this but i haven't heard i, I haven't had many people say i say x but I, I i say not x like i'm lying in public do people say like they're lying in public or do they, well, I mean, just they're not, they would never put it that way right like very few people would say i'm lying but they will say like yeah like well I guess it depends what you mean, but like if, if everyone around the table or in the conference or in the meeting is saying like, you know, X and, you know, you, everyone's just kind of going around and nodding and saying like, yeah, that's so terrible and that's so bad or or that's so great. I love that. Right, right. Uh, people will say those things. They may not, uh, you know, be be sort of full throated and, and give it their strongest endorsement, but they'll kind of like nod along and. I think, I think what you're saying is people, that people you know, moderate, sort of you know, people moderate, you know, yeah. the framing of their positions or their expression of their position, you know, depending on the audience that they're or the, you know, the company that the, the company that they're in. Um, and one thing I wanted to add, uh, um, Rob, uh, Rob, is because you know, obviously, uh, the pursuit of status is, I think, is uh, is one of the fundamental uh, human, uh, you know, drivers, and I think that isn't. It, it is very explanatory when it comes to a lot of human behavior, but I- I'm wondering, um, in, as, as you see it in your understanding of uh, of these phenomena, is there because a lot of a lot of behaviors about, and I understand why because this is very important evolutionary speaking. You know, in terms of your reputation or your, your status relative to other people, obviously. And I'm wondering whether there is any place. Um, in your framework for the idea is that it's not, people just don't care. People not only care about the way they come across to other people, people also want to feel themselves like they are good and moral people. For instance, um, you know, and this comes into a play a lot with literature on, on guilt. And that's actually one of the criticisms of, of guilt uh, as a, a pro-social, uh, you know, um, you know, inducement is that, uh, People that do things on the basis of guilt are trying to assuage their own guilt. You know, they're doing these things because they are uh, suffering. They're under psychological dissonance, and they want to quell that. They don't want to have thoughts, you know, r- you know, ruminations during the day that they are a bad person. You know, people want to kind of put that, keep that at bay. So they do things. I support affirmative action. I do these other things to to help me cope with these feelings. So it's not just about wanting to appear anti-racist and a good white person it's also about wanting to feel themselves like a good person and and i'm thinking like oh, yeah. and i'm thinking like you know motives can be very you know heterogeneous you know some people might only be motivated by status some people uh you know their reputation in front of other people and some people might really be psychologically afflicted uh you know with some type of guilt or with some type of anger of associating with such a racist uh, group white people uh, you know, in such a racist system that's set up to benefit, quote unquote, you know, uh, people like them. And um, I, I do think that, you know, some of this is really in turn. It's not just about trying to impress other people. Some of it is about trying to feel like a moral person to themselves, you know? Yeah, well, those I mean, those two things I don't think can neatly be, you know, categorized into two, you know, two, two different uh, things there. I think that you know, the pursuit of status, like part of part of uh, 
I think it's very difficult for people to to attain status and care about those things while also not sort of respecting themselves too. And so, you know, those. I, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to state this, but when when people pursue status, they're they're they are also trying to make themselves feel better in the process, right? To obtain some kind of you know authentic pride or uh, this feeling of self fulfillment. And often the the very things that make you feel prideful or fulfilled or you know mitigate your guilt are are also the things that get you status. Right. Like those are often the same exact things. Those things overlap with one another. There are some rare exceptions, right? Like there are people who will go out of their way and do things that make themselves hated by their coalition or their community. You know that that uh, you know this is like where that term contrarian comes in, where. You know, I think Richard might be to some degree known for this, where you say things that might upset your own side a little bit, but that's an unusual person, right? Like most people to to respect themselves, you know, they also got to get the respect of other people. Uh, and so, so yeah, I guess like maybe some, there may be some like misinterpretation of the things that I say when people want status, um, because it seems like such a, uh, uh, like a, a what, a, a sort of a cheap, and tawdry motive where oh you just care about the other people but no there's there's a there's the element of of yourself involved too and you know to to do great things and to impress other people often you have to sort of believe in yourself and respect yourself right that's like it's kind of it's a side effect of those things you know the side effect Mm -hmm. of trying to quote-unquote do the work you know is potentially that other people recognize me oh as a good white anti-racist uh, and, and often when people do, you know, when they yeah, do the work in private yeah, and they're reading yeah. the right books and listening to the right podcasts, like there are many people who I think they have this, um, they, they do it also with the understanding that, you know, just, just imagine like they, they have this, this audience in mind of the people they want to impress and just how good it would feel if they were watching me do this right now. Like yeah. we're, you know, we're, <laughs> we're sociocognitive creatures, right? We, we didn't, uh, evolve in an environment where we were just sort of isolated lone individuals trying to survive in nature right like we, yeah. we evolved in the context of human coalitions and communities and you know it's 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 uh it's you know the way we feel about ourselves is inevitably intertwined with with the way that we we sort of feel about others and our reputation in the eyes of others so those can't be sort of neatly separated i think yeah there's a there's a is lot it, of sorry yeah it isn't uh, is it uh you know, there's a simpler, I mean, there's a simple explanation, I think, for, for the results. So the whites and the Asians and the people who are wealthier uh, among the Democratic side are more likely to support, you know, less spending on police or cutting funding uh, for police. Is that is that among uh, blacks and Hispanics? The richer blacks and Hispanics, they're more likely to, uh, Zach, right? They're more likely to uh, support uh, the defund the police position, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, there, there are. I mean, there, there may be differences in the magnitude of that increase, but by and large, um, you know, the wealthy you are across all groups, the wealthier, the more educated you are, the, the greater support uh, for those. Uh, you Isn't know, out- the possibility that the wealthy and the educated are the only ones getting elite signals like ideal, like uh, elites, you know, you had this thing where it's the great awakening or even especially on police issues in like 2018 to 2020, the uh, support for uh uh, sending it's often not defunding the police. Often the kind of variable here is just you know spending less money on the police. So we yeah. call that as shorthand, you know, defunding defunding the police. Yeah, um, and maybe it's just like you know poor people just aren't watching MSNBC or, or Rachel Maddow or reading the New York Times, and so they're just they're just not getting it. So they're just sort of doing their you know they're just do, go they're just staying with the default position, which is that you know police and public order are good things. 
Well, yeah. And, yeah, they don't have the cultural capital, right? Like, the, to me, this is sort of an indicator of class in itself is like they're not going through the same sort of enculturation process of what an elite person would do, which is like, you know, watch MSNBC and read the New York Times and listen to, I don't know, whatever the Vox podcast or whatever people listen to. And, you know, and by, because they're busy working, right? Like, they ha- well, they have different priorities. They don't have sort of laptop jobs where they can consume all of that kind of content. I mean, you know, if you're if you're on your feet and you're working a blue collar job, you just you know you you you're sort of uh, blocked in some sense from 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 that kind of content. Yeah. Well, one thing I will say is that white Democrats, um, you know, in particular, have the highest levels of political engagement of, you know, any group, and and not all of those differences are explainable just by you know income or whatnot. I mean, I think even wealthy wealthy Asians are not nearly as politically interested or engaged as as white democrats so there's some there could be some you know uh you know although there it does the differences do persist out of you know a basic control for political interest i do think there is something to that that white democrats are much more likely to be attuned to uh you know media developments on that front uh you know when it comes to uh you know members of the democratic party and activists showing up on i i do think they are exposed to that and I, I would just say that it, it's it's nonetheless interesting that you know like, like listen I live in Atlanta you know my crime my neighborhood got an F score all right so I know that I know defunding the police would have a very bad bad things would happen did, did they not defund the police in Atlanta <laughs> did they not uh, defund the police there uh, I, I do not believe so. Uh, okay. I, I, it, it is, I think, a more conservative administration uh, here. Do, but. do you know, actually, Zach or, or Richard, like, do either of you know that even if, like, is there any research or data on even the places that didn't uh, defund the police didn't actually redirect material resources if um, if policing has declined anyway? Like, crime has been going up ev- everywhere, and especially in all the major cities, I know that, but has, has policing declined because I wonder if there's this sort of demoralization effect of like there was a huge backlash against police in general, and so like did police just stop doing their jobs? Because why would you risk you know like why would you risk getting caught on someone's iPhone and uh, you know be being a pariah? So yeah, I think Charles Lehman uh, has has written about this or, or tweeted about it. Yes, I think there was a lot of good evidence that that actually did happen. I know in Atlanta, okay. I, I can't speak for other places, but I know in Atlanta that we were dealing with staffing shortages, especially after the, um, uh, who's the guy? There was another incident a month after the Floyd incident where a guy got shot at a yeah, window after grabbing like Brooks or something. Uh, anyways, so yeah, there, there was definitely um, staffing issues with that and police force just you know, screw it. You're not going to have our back. You're going to go after us. We were clearly, you know, like, yeah, there, yeah there, exactly. there, there, there does appear to be uh, some of that. Um, what about, why, why don't we have a society where, like, why do we have to have one rules for all, all classes, right? Like, maybe, like, we should, like, maybe, like, the high classes, like, if they can handle stuff, like, why shouldn't they be allowed to, like, maybe that's ideal. Maybe it's ideal where we would have one culture. Like, this has always been the case. And, like, the, the peasants and the, and the normal people and the proles have, have their own culture. Like, should, do we, should we all have to be forced to live under the same, th- same regime? Well, that was the point of federalism was to prevent that, you know, allow, allow different laboratories to coexist. But, uh, you know, that, that's... Yeah. I mean, maybe the answer isn't to be like, I mean, oh, you're we kind of already don't, right? Like, like even in our, our ostensibly impartial justice system, if you're rich, you do get away with more, right? Like, just just because of you know the nature of the system, it's society, and your access to resources—not just economic resources, but social and all those kinds. Of, you're not really treated 
the same either. I mean, I, I yeah, guess like with, with my luxury that, beliefs, that part, I, yeah. I don't think anyone think I don't think anyone thinks that that part is good. I wouldn't defend that. I mean, it's just like sort of it's just it's a, it's a byproduct of letting people pay for lawyers, and that happens, right? But like you know. Yeah. We do this informally, right? Like, so you can have a polyamorous relationship if you're a, a Silicon, you know, if you're a Silicon Valley. Somebody was in uh, s- uh, San Francisco recently, and they made it sound like polyamorous. I, I didn't know it was that, like, it was, like, that common, but they were telling me, like, everyone they knew, and, you know, the people they know are either in Silicon Valley, like, news people who are activists, they do people in government. I don't know. You put all those people together, that's a pretty large percentage of the population, and apparently they were all polyamorous, um, and, you know, maybe they can handle it or maybe it's not the best thing for them but they're not going to like shoot each other you know these these silicon valley nerds over uh you know their girlfriend cheating on them or, or whatever um but you can't really do that in like the inner city like the you know the young men of the of uh inner city baltimore are not gonna uh you know put up with their shorty being in a uh, hmm. uh you know relationship <laughs> with, with another man and so like we do this to a certain extent just informally like people do form their like own communities that sort of suit them suit them uh better right yeah, yeah, they they do do that, but I I think one well one one criticism I have is it's one thing like if if you're well off and educated and have a you know certain kind of personality configuration and it can work for you, but then when you're you know mm. sort of writing op eds in uh you know uh, legacy media outlets that are widely read and trying your hardest to actually like normalize your yeah. peculiar sexual proclivities and trying mm. to get everyone else to do it, and of course like. Uh, you know, it initially may start with the readers of that outlet, but then gradually as it sort of percolates throughout and, you know, the latest Netflix series reflects your, you know, your unusual sexual desires and, you know, normies or whatever, start watching it. And then gradually it just becomes the sort of uh, ordinary, uh, becomes like an ordinary thing to do and is no longer judged. And so initially like, yeah, if you're, if you're smart and rich and you're higher conscientiousness and whatever, then it works for you. But then by the time, you know, the the sort of Netflix series is on season four and, you know, people who are less well off and less conscientious and so on watch it and they adopt that personality or, or rather they adopt those those customs like it, it just has a, a detrimental. So, I mean, but, uh, yeah. And another thing, I mean, is, is it even I mean, is it true that like this is the like the elites promoted these ideas? So like single motherhood, like I can't remember a recent TV show. I don't watch a lot of TV or movies, but basically, when people have kids, they 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 tend to be married. I mean, Murphy Brown was like you know thirty year you know thirty something years ago. Um, so you know that's like not not something recent. So that was like a big deal at the time. Um, I think Murphy Brown was a female lawyer who had a you know, a, a single child. Well, anyway, it, it was a big thing in the nineteen uh, in like the nineteen nineties. I think. I might be getting some of this wrong, but Bush's vice president, uh, Dan Quayle, like, you know, denounced the show for showing uh, like a single mother um, and uh, portraying it positively. But I don't think that that's like a lot of, I don't think a lot of shows do like promote, promote that. Um, I think cops, I think cop shows. I mean, I think they're generally, you know, yeah, yeah. The, we had to defund the police thing. Um, I, you know, let, let me put that to the side, but on, on the sexual morality stuff, I don't, I don't see a lot of like polyamorous, uh, TV being made, so I don't think you know p- lower classes are reading like Scott Alexander's blog or Rationalist and, and getting that stuff. Uh, so you know, are are they really promoting well, this stuff I to the lower classes? Promiscuity is definitely pervasive by now, right? Like, I mean, any sort of what music video or like the top ten songs or you know what, like like any, any kind of movie. No, or but at least I mean, at least like, didn't like you know. But, like, but the Atlantic didn't like start NWA like that. I mean, that wasn't like these were like you know sort of different. But but, but who popularized 
it. And yeah, they don't have to explicitly was, promote it in order to promote it. You know, yeah. just living that. Yeah, who, 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 who platformed and, it or whatever, like, right? It was just the market. What if it was just the market? What if that's what I mean? That's the people in these cities, inner cities, liked, and they liked seeing NWA. I mean, I don't think the Atlantic or the New York Times were saying, you know, this is the this is the thing to be. I think there were entrepreneurs like who spoke to the community, and the community, you know, members of the community liked it. And like what the elites didn't do is they didn't censor it. They didn't, you know, they gave them free speech. They didn't come and say, okay, we're taking this stuff off the shelves. I mean, there was a little bit of like attempts to do that, but like you know, the elites liberally said no. But that was defended on First Amendment grounds. Um, but it, it just sort of seems to me like the elites just sort of let the lower classes be themselves, and like that led to this. Yeah, I mean, they they, they lifted the guardrails, and I th- I think that the people who sort of act on those uh, uh, what uh, detrimental uh, uh, views, they may get some pleasure out of it, but it hurts everyone around them, right? Like most people don't want to like, like live around people who are doing drugs and, and having lots of baby mamas and kids out of wedlock and so on and so forth. Like, I mean, yeah, maybe the, the guys who, uh, who really like NWA, like young, young men who are into that stuff, like maybe it's fun for them, but it's probably not fun for their girlfriends or their parents or like literally everyone else in that neighborhood. I think, the so girlf- I, think, I, think I think it's fun for the girl. I think the girlfriends wouldn't have any other men. I think, <laughs> I think they would, they'd be different if the girlfriends didn't. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, fine. But, but broadly speaking, I don't think like for the most part, like, like, uh, completely lifting the guardrails, it may have been fun for like a, a, a certain sort of subset of people in lower income communities but by and large i think that like there's a reason why for example like zach's research is indicating that low-income people actually like the police more than upper income people despite those places producing a disproportionate number of criminals right like and people who are more likely to have family members and so on like a direct um a direct relationship with someone who's involved in the criminal justice system and yet they're more likely to support the police anyway yeah I think part of the problem is, is that it's not doing away. It's, it's saying that the old guardrails were oppressive, and and you know advocating for other ways of life without considering the consequences of those other ways of life. Like it's criticizing what we've had, but it's not necessarily making the case or showing that oh, there's going to be no consequences from you know, this new way of life we're going to try to normalize now. And and I think that's uh, part of the part of the problem here. It's not it's, that's it's kind of. You know, the 60s were really just a, you know, generation or I guess an era of, of a lot of self-critique, critique of American society, you know, really recognitions of oppressive social structures. And, you know, those critiques may have merit, but, you know, to really throw them all away without offering some alternative that really are, are functional and that could be functional in people's lives and promote good outcomes is you know, kind of uh, what led us to disaster, yeah. you know? <laughs> I mean, I guess it, there is a kind of like a values question involved here where I think on some some level, Richard, you're sort of defending like freedom as the ultimate value here. We're like, yeah, if poor people want to behave badly and because it's what they want to do and the elites were sort of just allowing them to be themselves in a sense, like is that versus like maybe someone with a different kind of orientation might say like like maybe that's what they want but that's ultimately not what's good for them or what's good for society or good for their children and their their neighborhood and their families is like maybe not doing those things so yeah i don't know the um yeah i you know i'm yeah i'm just trying to I'm, you know i'm trying to sort of understand how we got here whether it's uh good for them to have 
freedom. You know, I, I generally think so. I mean, the, the to stop. I mean, to stop it. I mean, like, look, we uh, like to, the the. I don't know, like, if who would who wants the you know the to give government the power to actually what it ta- would take to stop it. Now, I think that if you made me dictator and I could ban all rap music and made black people go to church instead and like pick their leaders and like you know uh, do all this stuff, like okay, like maybe like things. But that would be like you know I, I don't think I don't know if we can do things like at the margins. I don't know if like the New York Times came out and started lecturing. You need to take care of your like Bill Cosby. Like if everyone came out Bill Cosby, like you need to pull your pants up and you need. To, you know, uh, take care of your kids and you need to not commit crimes. Like, I don't, I don't know if that would matter. Like it would make like elites feel better in a different way. Like now they're speaking truth. Oh, to I, I, I disagree. I think, I mean, they're, they're, if like when the elites coordinate and are all on the same page, they can have, uh, uh, you know, pronounced positive effects on society. Uh, an example that I've used before is, is the anti-smoking campaign. So in the 1960s, something like 30 or 40 percent, I think it was 40 percent of Americans smoke cigarettes, right? Nicotine is addictive. It, like there's a bunch of things going for it, right? Like it, chemically, it's addictive. It looks cool. It's sexy. Like smoking had everything going for it. And then the elites coordinated and, uh, it, you know, sort of implemented this this national campaign of like smoking will kill you. It's ugly. It's disgusting. It's low status on and on. And now decades later, I mean, it's only something like 15 percent of Americans smoke. So they they had a massive impact on that. So if they all got on the same page, stigmatized a certain behavior, made it low status, made it ugly, made it uh, associated with undesirable kinds of people, I think like it may take some time. It wouldn't happen overnight, but over the course of a couple of decades, I think they would have a massive yeah, impact. Although I think that race is a, compl- a complicating factor here. If it was a white elite telling uh, the black masses like you know how to behave and trying to stigma, it, it would have to come from within. It would have to come sure. from within the black community. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, if... Yeah, if all the elites of, you know, whatever, every sort of ethnic background yeah. and so on, like, yeah, if they could get uh, artists and musicians and so on, besides just academics and intellectuals to, to oh, I don't, yeah. agree I, I on musicians. Like, I mean, artists and musicians with that work, I mean, I feel like it has to be stronger than that. I feel like it has to be like religion. It has to be, you sure. know, something, yeah. you know I, I think like if Puff Daddy did, you know, uh, public service announcements and said, you know, like all this stuff, you know, I, I just can't imagine it. I just can't imagine. So, because you're dealing with, it's not like, uh, you know, smoking. This is like different than smoking. Because smoking is just like, you know, you just don't start smoking. Okay. You know, you don't smoke. This is like impulses and like controlling yourself and like getting up and going to work every day and like, you know, staying off drugs and alcohol. And it's like these temptations are like everywhere. And, you know, culture has an Im- impact, but like it's not as easy as like don't litter or don't smoke or like, uh, you know, the, these things which seem to me to be relatively. And even the smoking thing, I don't know if it even worked. Did it work for like the lowest of the low class? I think the local lower classes, I mean, they probably smoke less, but I still, I, I think they smoke a lot. It was, you know, the educated who pretty much stopped smoking. Um, so yeah, these, these are, these are, yeah, these are, these are hard issues. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it would happen. I, I think it would be a very difficult and uh, yeah, so, but there's a difference between acknowledging it's difficult, you know, it's difficulty and maybe there's even a difference between like trying to promote, you know, uh, a different, you know, sort of whatever the opposite of luxury beliefs might be versus like actively promoting the luxury beliefs themselves. Right. Like, you know, even if people just stopped, you know, you don't necessarily have to promote different values, but just stop uh, promoting luxury beliefs like that in itself, I think, would have some non-trivial effect on society where, I mean, literally, like, defund defund the police, right? Like, if if people had protested and demonstrated and so on, but they weren't actively calling to defund the police, like, 
crime, like that would have had a material impact on the amount of crime we've seen over the last two years. Just not doing that, right? Not not even saying like, let's refund the police or give them more money, but just let's not defund them. Right, would have right, had some, right. some effect, so. Right. Yeah. With the defund, yeah. With the defund thing, I see it as, I see, you know, the elite, like the true elites. I mean, we have to like, you know, you know, just focus, you know, just like uh, be clear what we're talking about. I sort of see it as like, that was like a, you know, it was a very, gra- I think it was like some of these things are very grassroots things. And like the New York Times, like the Atlantic, I think they're like swept along with, I don't think the New York Times is like the source of like defund the police. I right? guess it, I think it, it's, it's, I know it's, it sounds crazy defund the police, especially when you're in a high crime area, but I, I'm thinking like, I'm, and I'm going to think back to uh, the Skeptic Magazine poll, and we're Manhattan's too. We're going to do a follow-up study. We're trying to get at people's perceptions of the extent of police violence against uh, you know different groups. Um, yes. The, the only yeah. data we have shows that you know the average or the median uh, you know Democrat thinks you know when you you know at least a thousand up to ten thousand uh, unarmed black men are being killed every year. Um, oh, yeah. So well, but it, people, it, people are. People People are numerically illiterate. Yeah, if you ask them no, any question, like how many people fall off the building, no, no, they'll no, say but 10 I, but million. I, but I, but I'm saying is that if you actually, that is your perception, that thousands and thousands of black men are being killed by the police every year, you know, the police are evil. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's not that crazy to think about, you know what, maybe we should punish the police, you know? <laughs> it, it is kind of, I guess, a, a, uh, a very, um, you know, uh, uh, soft work way of thinking, yeah. but it, it is, you know, but you, you can, but you can't ask just absolute numbers of stuff. Cause you'll say how many people are killed by Muslim terrorism and people will say, you yeah. know, any number they're, they're going to give you, they're going to give you some weird. Yeah, I, know, well, but, I think uh, what Zach is saying is like, basically yeah. like if, if the, if the mainstream sort of like big media outlets, uh, repeatedly make the point over and over, it is going to, you know, uh, it's going to, whatever, manipulate your numeracy and you're going to go from thinking it's, you know, 20 unarmed people shot to 10,000 because, you know, every time you open up the New York Times, it's like, oh, here's this other story that we want to bring to your attention and sort of shift the way that you're thinking about this problem. Yeah. And yeah, that, that turns into action and demonstrations and protests. And yeah, yeah. And, and I, think that, I think that's right. So that's yeah. what I'm trying to get at in, in this next study. Um, is to see whether people's mis, you know, or I guess their misestimates or their overestimates has a subsequent or downstream effect on their policy preferences. You know, do people that think that, you know, ten thousand uh, black men are killed every year, are they more likely? Does holding that belief increase the likelihood that one will support, you know, defunding the police? Um, so it's something we're, we're trying to get at. Uh, but I, I guess the point is, is that you know. And I know status motives are are, are definitely uh, you know uh, paramount when, when it comes to a lot of human behavior. But I, I also think people are motivated by different goals. You know, some people have you know status motivations or social motivations, and some you know we're also motivated by accuracy concerns. And you know, some people might generally believe that you know the police are killing thousands and thousands of people of color every year. Nobody's doing anything about it. You know, the police unions have their back. There's no accountability. Screw the police. We're going to defund it, you know, and they might not they might be so fixated on that. The moral harm being perpetrated against, you know, uh, people of color that they might not really whatever attention they give to potential downsides of depolicing policies might be relatively, uh, you know, marginal, Um, you know, if it even registers, you know. Uh, So um, I I guess my my point, especially that I make in the article, is that people's considerations might be hijacked by moral ones and that they 
therefore might not give much of um, you know a deeper uh, thought or consideration or reflection of the consequences of reducing funding uh, for police. And you could also have some people, and this is one of the critiques I received. You know, some people said to me, you know, but what if you know liberals or de- white Democrats they don't just don't believe uh, that there is a relationship between uh, police spending. Um, you know, and, and crime, uh, you know, and, um, you know, I think I suspect that's the case, you know, for, uh, at least some, you know, white Democrats, they actually don't think there's a correlation, even though, you know, it's, it's, but I would still say that, you know, they get to that conclusion because they are ideologically steered in that direction. You know, they have these commitments, you know, they have these priors and yeah, they're not going to be, go through the policing literature with an open mind, (laughs) you know? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, it, so they they are kind yeah. of biased against the police already. So, um, you know, why they they don't believe this relationship is also partially partly a reflection of their ideological values and, and commitments. Yeah, um, and that's right. Why I do remember, you think? Yeah, I remember. I mean, I remember watching these. Uh, like, I don't know. We seem to have fewer of these uh, BLM riots um, than we did. Like, I remember in the uh, you know uh, even before George Floyd, there was these. Um, I think it was it was a it was a normal thing, and you would like turn on CNN or MSNBC, and it was like the most exciting thing in the world. You'd like they'd be you know in uh you know Wisconsin they'd be in Wisconsin or they would be in Minneapolis or whatever, and like you know like you could see like they were about to burn things down, and you wonder like how much of it is like. You know, I, how much of it is they're just like ratings? I mean, it's it's fun to like, you know, it's it's like, you know, I watch cable news. I don't usually watch cable news, but like I would tune in like when I thought there was going to be uh, riots. Um, and then like, you know, you know, how, you know, if they're, the, you know, if they weren't there, um, like, are, are they just, are they just fueling it? And I think that they, that they must be, I think you're right. I think on the police shooting question, even though I don't, you know, I don't trust the, you know, just asking them, you know, how many you know, people will give you all kinds of crazy answers. But the idea, like I, I saw people on CNN, like, and nobody like questions this. And this was, oh, this was way back in, this was Trayvon Martin. Cause I remember this because uh, John Derbyshire was uh, fired from national review for writing a response to this, um, where they would talk about the talk um, where it was like, Oh, I have to tell my black son, uh, you could, you can get murdered, you know, any moment you step out the door, you know, Michelle Obama once said, um, you know, uh, they asked her if, uh, she was worried about Barack Rodrigo for president. She said, as a black man, he could get killed, you know, walking down the street. So like, you know, nothing like, yes, like maybe by another black man, like she's obviously tried to apply, like it's a Klansman or a police officer, um, Wait, or something. Uh, uh, Eric Kaufman, do you, do you think it was a CSPI report, the social construction of, of racism, where he found that. I think uh, eight in ten of his black respondents thought they were more likely uh, blacks are more likely to uh, be killed by the police than they were to be killed in a car accident or something like that. Oh, yeah, I don't know. It if, I, really, that doesn't sound like it was from CSPI, but it does sound it like was, something. Yeah, yeah, it was they, it was a Kaufman report, but yeah. So, um, and is that not because of media coverage? Right, like if every yeah, time definitely. you open the latest webpage or turn on cable news or what have you. And, and it sort of seeps into the conventional wisdom. If every time it's like, Oh, you know, X thousands of numbers of people are dying in car accidents every year today, you know, 75 people died in a car accident. Suddenly car accidents would be va- very sort of salient in people's minds. That's sort of availability bias. And that would be the thing that people would be demonstrating against and, you know, calling for safer uh, automobile regulations and so forth. But that's not the thing that we're focusing on, right? It's this sort of defund the police idea, which is, it's sort of backfiring in terms of uh, 
what like reducing the numbers of, of people that are dying perceptions of discrimination do not have not remained flat over time and they do show a very yeah. close they've gotten per- worse right like <laughs> yeah, I, at least it, i remember it's, sort uh, of like when obama was elected in 2008 like race relations were basically like the best they'd ever been in, in america well, that's kind of what's and sad. then like four or five years later they became like the worst they ever were well that's well, that's kind of what's sad is that you know um you know, black Democrats, you know, they were actually becoming more conservative, um, you know, towards the later years of the 90s, um, you know, and especially when Obama was elected, you know, perceptions of discrimination uh, went down, which just goes to show you of how, uh, you know, uh, reactive our perceptions are to the input or, you know, the that we get through the media. Because uh, we don't know, I mean, outside of our, you know, in our towns, we don't, uh, you know, especially systemic racism, you don't observe, you know, we, we don't know about the extent of discrimination society. We have our neighborhoods, which we frequent, which we, you know, hang around in. And, you know, if we don't see discrimination, you know, overtly, you know, we might come away with a, uh, you know, that discrimination, discrimination isn't a problem. Uh, so we're kind of our, our evaluations or assessments on how much discrimination there is, is kind of uh, subject or kind of um, hostage to the media environment because we don't know we don't have an understanding of what's going on in other parts of the country, and that's why I've shown that people perceive lower rates of discrimination in their own communities than at the national level uh, because the oh, national is that right is that is that for both white and non-white Democrats or is that um, specific to I, any... I, that is that yeah I remember that being also for this is. Uh, my one of my first tablet pieces, I pulled data from a, a Pew survey that asked about discrimination, um, you know, at the national level and at the local level. And what you find is across the board, you know, people do perceive lower, uh, you know, black people are less likely discriminated, you know, in their own neighborhoods than at the national level. And I think at least partly or a, a good part of that is because, you know, people need the media to fill in the gaps, you know, of what's going on. Of what's going the, on around in, them. in, in the rest so of the country. Yeah. Um, I think it's uh, Robin Hansen has that sort of distinction, like near near mode and far mode. And like, you know, your near mode is sort of your concrete reality, what's going on around you. And we tend to be sort of more pragmatic and practical. But then in the sort of far mode of like the abstract, the world beyond you, that's when your sort of ideals and wishes and you know, those kinds of things come in. And so that's interesting that like in people's everyday lives, they actually don't perceive that much. But then in this sort of in the abstract that and, and, and i guess like in, does that mean that the, the sort of demonstrators are marching for yeah i guess they are they're sort of marching for an ideal because they're probably not seeing those kinds of things around them very much i think you know i think that there is i mean like okay so i do think that they per, what they perceive is they do perceive there are confrontations between police and members of the community and i think that is you know sort of is going to happen when you have you know a very uh communities with astronomically high crime rates right because police are going to be on edge um they're you know they can't distinguish easily who the good guys and who the bad guys are and you know, you could imagine that, like, they are, like, legit. I do think that the anger is, like, legitimate. Not legitimate is, like, they're correct. But, like, I do think it's real. And I do think it's based on something. And, like, there's a reason that, like, they burned down the cities, you know, over, um, you know, over these incidents that, you know, for 
these, these seem like you know, nothing just, but you know, these, the, these communities, I mean, they often, I mean, they often, their values are not, you know, that great. I mean, the, the, uh, there was a, I, I saw like, I've seen like clips where like, uh, like a guy will be like robbing a store and then like he'll get shot and then they'll have his, like his mom or his sister on TV and she'll be like, why don't you just let him, why don't you, why don't they just let him rob him? Like, why well, do you have to that. kill someone over that? And like, so there is like this value that like, I don't know, you just like let criminal, like, you know, other communities, you know, that, that would be, you know, unthinkable to, for you yeah, to talk I don't know. I wouldn't want to read too much into those sort of anecdotes, though, like, because they're only going to, sh- like, you know, for every person like that, for all we know, there are three or four other cases where some guy gets shot and the parents or grandma or whoever is like, yeah, you shouldn't be robbing that store, but they're not going to interview that woman and, you know, play that clip on CNN. Well, right? That sounds like, like a good clip. I, he shouldn't have been wrong. I'm glad he got shot. Maybe, 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 Fox, maybe Fox News would play it, but like, <laughs> you know, for, but basically, like, my point is like, just because you see like a few of those clips, you know, we're not, you know, there's the sort of uh, the known unknowns, right? Like, there, there, there may be some other instances of people in those communities who actually don't like crime that much. And, and apparently, like, they, they aren't they like, on average, the, the sort of data on support for refunding or or maintaining like current levels of policing and so forth like at least in i remember there was a poll in minneapolis like right around the time of the george floyd thing or shortly thereafter uh it like white people were the most in favor of defunding yeah, the there, police there was, in minneapolis. There was a referendum. you're right but funding is just one narrow question like you could wonder like should you like okay so there was should you like actually like arrest somebody for like George Floyd, like uh, selling, you know, have it uh, passing off a 20 counter for $20 bill. I don't know. Like, I don't know what the people's at. They just want maybe want police to be funded, but then they want police to just I like, think if you ask that like, question, I think white people would be like, you know, basically yeah. don't, don't charge them with anything. Yeah, I think yeah. they'd be way oh, more likely. I, no, I don't think I, yeah. disagree, I disagree. Counterfeit money. I think a lot of minorities are probably like, yeah, my family runs a business. We don't want people just showing up and stealing stuff. This is our livelihoods, you know? So I, maybe, I, I, yeah. maybe I, I do predict that, you know, the yeah, support would probably be higher among uh, whites, you know, yeah. for those, uh, yes. you know, especially reasons. sort of educated and affluent whites. I think they would like those kinds of crimes. I think they would like it would be like more than half would be like, that's fine. You don't need to charge anyone for that. So. I think a liberal. I think the most liberal. I, I don't think that like most uh most white people, but I, you know, I, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, a lot of these, uh, communities, they wanted less enforcement. I mean, they want, you know, they want police, maybe they, they see it as like a jobs program. They're just instinctively for government funding or, or whatever. Um, but you know, I, I can, I can, I can believe that it's. <laughs> the only reason they want to refund the police is like, yeah, we like government spending. Like, <laughs> yeah, like maybe they'll hope to get a job. Okay. It's like a sort of a jobs program or something like that. I mean, yeah, I don't think they're thinking that far ahead. I think they're just like, yeah, the guy with the uniform on who's enforcing the law is probably a good guy. Yeah, maybe. Or they have unrealistic expectations. Like they want the police to just arrest the bad guy, like not like be able to perfectly distinguish between the good and the bad guy, and like leave alone some of like. The, like they don't like, like i don't see any evidence they like like um uh, like uh, uh broken windows policing like the, i mean the problem is there's no cooperation in these communities with a lot of the police that's why the crime rate is so bad and part of it might be because you know snitches get stitches there's like a uh, intimidation uh factor at the local level but part of it might be just like the people don't want to see their cousins or brothers are arrested and they have different ideas about um you know how, how public order should be uh should be kept so yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it's like, um, I, you know, I just, I tend to think that this stuff is like, it's actually difficult because of like the, you know, the, the high crime rate in these areas. And, and a lot, a lot depends on like the attitudes of the people who live there. But I, I think maybe, yeah. may, maybe you're reading too much into what the, I guess the minority activists are saying, you know, what, what I think the message you get from them is going to be different than, you know, the 
attitudes you, you hear in the street. And I, I think minority activists do have, or, or do have some incentive to kind of, uh, play on and tropes about uh, the, the activists and, as well as the clips that the, the media chooses yeah. to play. And I think like, you know, you we're, we're seeing like a sort of narrow slice of, of, you know, the people who claim to speak for these people or the people who speak in these communities that the media chooses to highlight. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's, I, I just think like the, the between the those, you know, the the activists and the people who the leaders and so forth who are supposedly speaking on their behalf. As, but I think like that, in addition to like the survey data, is also important to keep in mind. You know, who actually supports the police? Who wants more policing? Like, yeah, yeah I don't know. I, 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 I'm inclined well, I mean, to believe that. Like, what, what, one, you know, one, one, one follow up study I would love to run is to really see, you know. How well do white Democrats and liberals? Uh, how how good are they are at uh, at estimating support for various policies among other groups? You know, do they do they to what extent is their support for defunding the police conditional on the perception that oh this is what blacks want? You know, this is what they, they want. Yeah, they, this yeah. is, and they may get that perception from being disproportionately exposed to the activists on social media that uh, you know are also echoing those talking points. So. It would be interesting to see, you know, whether this is a we know better than them, you know, and believe me, in the long run, they'll be better off. Or, you know what, this is what I my perception of the sentiment in the community is want. right now. That's interesting. Um, you know, so that, that would be yeah. really useful, yeah. uh, you know, to get at because, um, you know, it could be that, you know, they are trying to act in the interests of these communities, but they misperceive what the. The, you know, the median attitude is in those communities, or maybe they're just so, you know, uh, I guess presumptuous, you know, they, they know better, you know, uh, you know, these people are uneducated. We know that in the long run, these policies are going to work, you know? Um, yeah, I think like, probably the conservative view would be like that, right? Like the sort of limousine liberal idea yeah. of like they had, they're so disconnected from these communities, but they think that they know better, that they're right, smarter right, 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 right. and so forth. And I think, yeah, maybe the, the liberal view would be like, well, this is what they want. And like, you know, the, the, the Republicans or the conservatives are interfering with, you know, like, you know, they, they think that policing is good, but actually the, you know, look, look at the, who this guy who's speaking on behalf of the community, he says policing is bad. So why don't we just give them what they want? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think, yeah, I still, I would go back to, I mean, they, okay. Like they, they, they elect politicians. I mean, they don't, they tend not to elect, you know, these uh, crime rate inner cities. They tend not to elect, um, uh, you know, like defund the police activists, like in the electoral politics, they don't do that well, but they don't elect like people who are like the toughest on crime people either. Um, so, you know, I kind of think the people that they vote for, like give them, they, they don't want to defund the police. No, they want government spending, <laughs> but like they're, they're, you know, I don't see, I don't see like this groundswell of like, let's do something. Like, it's not just activists. It's just, it's how people vote. Um, it's cooperation with, you know, the police. They can all, you know, they can all vote Republican if they wanted to, you know, they, they don't, or they could vote for the most, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, most extreme, you know, pro-crime Democrat they can find. That, those aren't the people who win. And so I don't think it's just like, oh, the liberal, white liberal media, you know, just uh, focused on these few activists. I think it's, so there's something real here in the, in the community. But I, I think you're operating maybe on the assumption that, you know, these voters are high information voters that know like, uh, for one of the reports I'm, I'm actually looking at differences in political sophistication engagement among democrats by race and what you find is that you know a lot of black democrats not even a majority know the party affiliations of their you know members of congress <laughs> you know like so a lot of you know voting their political behavior and there's a book about this recently that came out is um 
is very uh, shaped by group expectations. You know, uh, you know they may be opposed. Uh, they may not love the Democratic Party, but if they don't vote Democrat, you know, the, they're violating a group norm, and they don't want to be, uh, you know, uh, um, ostracized. And they also don't. It's not like they have, uh, you know, good information about, you know, uh, the candidates that they're voting for. A lot of. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not putting this on flat. This is how a lot of voters no okay, well, people well, make well, political well, decisions is you know most it, people are low information yeah, voters and they don't really know and to the rhetoric i mean they could they, if it was if a tough on crime message was strong like maybe they wouldn't pay attention to what they actually did but they would get up and they would say we're going to lock up all those inner city thugs here in this neighborhood and we're going to let you normal but no but that doesn't that doesn't sell i mean it does i don't see any evidence that that sells in the inner city well, what i'm saying is it's like i think a lot of those inner city voters when they cast a ballot for a candidate, they don't think, oh, they, I'm, this candidate is opposed to uh, locking up criminals. You know, I, I don't I don't think that is uh, that is a, a consideration that is operative at the polls. I think it's much more I superficial. They, I, I think, think they it's much like more a message that's more friendly towards criminals than harder against criminals. I, I just think that everybody that's at the, church, that's everybody at the church is saying, go vote for this person. And that is, yes, you know, but why <laughs> is it this person? Why is it always this? Why is the, why is it always that person though? It's, it's just like, it's just like, it's, it's magic. The Democrats just sort of appoint and like, no, I, I think we have a democracy and they do reflect to the extent of, of, you know, the communities they come out of. Yeah. But the, well, I mean, they do vote. Well, I'm thinking of, like, like I mean, don't isn't it true that um, like black Democrat voters are responsible for Joe Biden's uh, victory in the primaries? Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, isn't it, isn't, isn't yeah. it that like like a lot of like white affluent liberal like they wanted Bernie Sanders or they wanted Elizabeth Warren or someone who was like more liberal and yeah. more sort of uh, politically extreme in some ways, whereas Biden yeah. was seen as yeah. like the most conservative among the Democrats. And in that case, like. I mean, my understanding is like in many states, he was carried by black voters. Yeah. And I, yeah, I've seen other, other survey data indicating that like black voters, even though they, they, they are overwhelmingly registered for the Democrat party, like they tend to identify as conservative. And, and I think like part of, part of that maybe because yeah, of what, of what Zach is describing is like people, like yeah, people are sort of messy and unorganized in their political views, right? Like it tends to be the elites who have like sort of clearly defined ideologies of here's what I believe and the reasoning behind it and why. And like low information, ordinary voters are just like, I like this and I like that. And they don't really pay that much attention to politics. And yeah, you're much more reliant on cues, you know, either from your social group, your church, your family, you know, your friends, uh, you know, and, and, yeah. and that that really might be the extent of it. I mean, there was a whole book, um, I forget the title, but it came out in the past uh, two years or so, which looked at, you know, the social pressure that blacks, you know, experience when they have to make decisions at the voting booth or even donating. And, you know, the bottom line is, is that um, a lot of times they underreport the support for Republican candidates because they're worried about violating, you know, uh, that, that, that group norm, you know, the, the blacks vote for democratic party. Uh, and, uh, that, that, that pressure is, can be very, um, you know, at least strong enough to the, to the, in, to the, to the extent that, you know, in some of these studies, people were donating money, uh, to democratic candidates, which they weren't really that enthused about, but because the person collecting the donations was another black Confederate, you know, it's like okay, I have to donate to, uh, <laughs> I have to donate something, uh, and uh, the point is, is that you know, it's not just that you know what I, 
it doesn't, I, and what I'm saying is that this doesn't purely come down to their attitudes, you know, or what they see as the best candidate that will provide uh, what they're looking for. And a lot of it also comes down to, uh, you know, group expectations uh, and narratives about a group, uh, you know, uh, group narratives as, as well, um, especially about other parties. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 I think definitely um, one of the points you see these candidates are the outcome for primaries and, and whatnot. I, I would say I was in response to that, that, you know, who votes in the primaries? Yes, black people vote in the primaries, but the, the, disproportionately people that vote in the primary are the politically engaged, uh, the politically sophisticated. White Democrats tend to vote and participate in primaries at uh, higher uh, rates. Um, no. And yeah. that is... Well, I, I, mean, I would argue that the politically engaged are the only real way we could talk about public opinion. Like you could say, well, the people in the black community, they, the ones who are politically engaged, they all love the uh, far left Democrats. But like, if you ask the guy who never thought about politics in his life and, you know, doesn't vote, it doesn't do anything. Oh, he might like find a lot to uh, Trump that he agrees with. Like, you know, somewhat like, so what, I mean, it's just like a theoretical, you know, construct, right. Where I think that, you know, politics is a public, you know, quote unquote public opinion. What we're talking about is something that's tilted towards not necessarily even the elite, it doesn't have to be that, but just the people who are paying attention, the people who show up, the people who care, the people who donate money, the people who knock on doors. I mean, that's that's that to me is really public opinion, not just the average of what every human being thinks, regardless of whether they care about or think about politics at all. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the critiques of democracy, or at least American democracy, probably all forms of democracy going back for a long time, <laughs> is that, you know, the people that are most, uh, the, the system is most responsive to, or the people that were participate the most which is going to be those you know high iq high ability high information yeah, I, don't know, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily a critique of democracy it could be i mean it could be well, like I, that's why democracy works like oh the people are so stupid well no there's, there's a minority left-wing or know. liberal critiques of democracy is the the fact that the let low information voters the people that are kind of apathetic or you know their their preferences are not being considered or being uh, you know, definitely under-considered relative to their, uh, you know, contribution or, or their share of the electorate, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, gotcha. So, um, but, when, but when Kanye West runs in 2024, <laughs> he will get out the vote. And <laughs> well, we will see an increase in Did you notice that he ran, in 20, uh, he ran in 2020? Nobody noticed. Yeah, but he didn't, uh, it wasn't, didn't he not register properly? Like his name wasn't actually on the ballots, right? Like, didn't, wasn't he a writing candidate? In some states he was, yeah. In some oh, states really? he was. Some states well, he, maybe if he, he's, if he takes it seriously next time, you know, if Kanye runs as a Republican against Biden, you know. And I, and I will, and I will stick to my, uh, my, uh, my, um, uh, prediction my my view here that no he won't get any of the black vote because it's not just cues oh kanye wants us to like no they actually don't like the conservative message and they wouldn't and i think i was proven right in 2020 when it was like you know he'd get nothing even when he was uh on the ballot they weren't just like oh kanye like no it actually you know mattered is that he, true? He, i'd like to see that i would like, if, 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 like if his name was actually on the ballot not a write-in like did he actually no, he was, take, like, was, like, i know he was i wasn't didn't look up the numbers but i know he was on the ballot and i know he never got any substantial vote anywhere uh from let me see kanye west ballot 2020 let me make sure this is right before i give uh 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 let's see although to be fair like isn't the media and like a lot of the sort of uh yeah he was was public figures yeah he was on the ballot in 12 states um he missed the deadline most other he gathered uh the most votes ten thousand uh in tennessee uh, so maybe okay. a few black people. So how many people voted in yeah, but what percentage of the, you know, I, I think it may not be, you know, it may not be trivial. He may have had, you know, 
you know, some grassroots support there. But I, I, I also like the, the usual kind of media outlets yeah. are circling the wagons and like creating a stigma around Kanye too, right? So I think there are some sort of social cues involved okay. such that like Kanye was cool a couple of years ago, but now that every, you know, sort of all of the, you know, like the, aren't there musicians and stuff now coming out against Kanye? Like there are all these cues to ordinary people like Kanye's a, a bad person now, so you can't support him anymore. So and Kanye sort of responsive to that. In Tennessee, 10,279, he was on the ballot. That's 0.34%. He was in fourth place, you know, behind Trump, uh, Biden and Joe Jorgson, who I think was the uh, it says independent libertarian, libertarian. Yeah. So yeah, he didn't. Uh, he uh, yeah, she got point nine eight. Um, you know, so three times more than Ben Conway. So no, like uh, he, you know, the the social cues from the elite artists did not did not shift many black voters. Uh, apparently, well, um, I'm saying they shifted him away. I'm I'm saying that the the the, the artists and the at least right now, right? Like you know, ever since Kanye said nice things about Trump. He like other other high profile yeah. artists and musicians and so forth are are distancing themselves from Kanye. I you think know, that's, and, and that's so right. yeah. like they're they're not going to vote for him. I think in in large part for for that reason he's going to lose support. So okay, cool. So Rob, to, to circle back, just now that I have you here, it's a great opportunity to ask. And yeah, maybe yeah. something for you to dwell on going forward is, um, I mean, uh, your luxury belief thesis kind of came in the context of kind of left wing or progressive beliefs. I'm wondering whether you think. That you know, the concept could also apply under uh, a right wing or conservative milieu, um, and I know that's kind of misleading because maybe that there's you know what's right wing it kind of can vary uh, by culture. But I'm thinking, especially like, uh, and this is maybe up um, uh, Richard's alley. Uh, you know what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. You know, for instance, um, are the I, I know there is a uh, you know a large degree of support for the Putin regime among the the ultra nationalists and these nationalists are probably i'm guessing they're probably not poor uh maybe richard could you know but they seem to be you know sophisticated you know they're they're bloggers or whatnot and and i'm wondering you know the people getting sent to the front lines are you know are disproportionately you know ethnic uh, minorities and they tend to be from the poor class and the people seems to be most supportive of the war (laughs) so i'm wondering whether I guess more generally is what I'm asking is whether there could be luxury beliefs in a, in a it, it's, it's kind of culturally or, or politically neutral in the sense that it is not tethered to one political ideology. It just yeah, refers to, you exactly. know, whatever the norms are in that society or whatever. You know. I never meant it to be like, I've been accused of this too. Like, Oh, the luxury beliefs concept is just this like Trojan horse to criticize the left or something like that. And it, it was, it was never meant to be that way. Like, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, the idea arose from my experiences on elite university campuses and you know many people are aware that you know the students are overwhelmingly liberal democrats the professors are you know i think the professors it's something like 90 plus percent are registered democrats and among the students who are registered it's like 80 plus percent so it's actually the professoriate is actually slightly more uh likely to be registered democrats than the students but then of the students who are on the left they actually tend to be like hard left whereas the professors tend to be more center left um but those are like, and, and these are people who, you know, at Yale, it's something like there are more students from families in the top 1% than the entire bottom 60%. The median income of families at Ivy League universities is $200,000 a year. Cambridge is not that much different. And so, you know, the beliefs here uh, tend to be held by people who are on the left. And it's not like, oh, they're on the left and therefore, you know, their views are wrong or something. It's just like, you're rich and you know, you hold these views and you're not really thinking them through. And that's just kind of how it tended to, to unfold in that way. Um, 
but yeah, I, I mean, there are. I think yeah, there, there. Of course, there could be some views held by well-to-do. Yeah, right you know, you, mean, you would think like, in the nineteen sixty-four, you yeah. might have been a luxury belief might have been supporting for the Vietnam War. You know, in the sense that I'm a wealthy. Pr- I'm not going to go to fight in Vietnam, but uh, you know. Yeah, well, I, I hear this actually a lot from from people on the right, where they um they denigrate college, right? Where they'll say on the you know on the one hand they'll say like, oh, college is outdated, or it's silly, or it's ridiculous, and they talk uh, uh in glowing terms about the trades. But then when you look at what they're doing with their own families, like they're pulling every string they possibly can to get their kids into the same top colleges that they themselves went to. So, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, of course you could say like there you can critique colleges reasonably. Uh, but but at the same time, like you can also stress that like on average going to college is still a good thing. But they're like actively trying to direct people away from college while at the same time making sure that, you know, they're, they're the ones in their they're close uh, in their circle, mm. right? The, their loved mm. ones. They're trying to get them into college still. Um, and then, yeah, the military thing, thing too, where like they, 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 they say, oh, yeah, the military is this great thing. You should join and it's wonderful and so on. But, you know, when it comes to their own kids and their own families, they, you know, they would they would uh, a lot of them would 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 uh, very much not like to see their own sons and, and daughters uh, enlist, especially in the midst of a war. So, yeah, uh, these are good examples. Yeah, I, I think yeah. my mil. I mean, talking about the military actually reminds me that. I think we've spoken, me, me and you, on my first uh, CSBI podcast appearance, I, I, we briefly, uh, or I believe we reminisced about my time, my decision to join the Israeli military. But I think that experience, you know, um, or at least that stage of my life, kind of in some way informs my writing of this uh, this piece on defunding attitudes, because, you know, I was really had strong moral convictions, you know, and I lived, definitely had a privileged upbringing, you know, in the sense, you know, stable two-parent home and until my parents got divorced, but you know, I, I had a good Jewish upbringing, and I decided to just say, "Screw college." Is this Goldberg, you're Jewish. All these mater- <laughs> no, no relation to Whoopi either. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and just throughout, you know, these material luxuries to go just live in a pit in the middle of the desert for for years and potentially, you know, risking life and limb, you know, for something I strongly believed in. So, I, I guess uh, what I'd like to see going forward for the luxury beliefs is kind of uh, some recognition that, uh, you know people vary in the extent that moral conviction is a driving factor in their behavior. Um, and some people are more status motivated to write. I think what's useful, I don't know if this has been replicated, but you know, the concept of, you know, external versus internal motivation to withhold prejudice by the social psychologist I, I, divine. Either way, she says, anyways, long story short, she says that, you know, some people are motivated or only motivated to externally withhold prejudice means inside they don't really care about anti-racism norms norms but they don't want to come across as appearing bigots so in polite company you know they will uh it's important for them to appear as a non-racist but internally they don't really care whatsoever whereas some people are not only externally motivated but they that external motivation is tied to their internal motivations of how much they just um abhor you know prejudice and racism and inequality uh, well, I think like the best way to 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 support anti-racist goals is to actually be an anti-racist, right? Like, there's yeah, I mean, it sort of reminds me of the the research from from Robert Trivers and others on self-deception and those kinds of things. And it's like, yeah, it's if you if you want to convince other people of something, the best way to do that is to believe it yourself. And so, yeah, I, I think like very few people are are sort of explicitly and consciously deceptive in, in, in the way that I think you're describing here, where people will say one thing and believe another. I, I think it's it may be slightly uh, more prevalent 
then at, at least like within the last couple of years, I mentioned earlier, like now I'm meeting more and more people who, because I think the norms are changing so fast. Like we don't like people don't have time to like update their internal model and their beliefs and viewpoints. And they're seeing things like in real time, like yesterday, this was bad today. It's good. Uh, I, I can't get there yet. Like it was, it's only been a day and I have to believe this new thing and they'll say it, but, but like, yeah, they'll, they'll privately say like, I, I definitely don't believe that, but I'm just going along with it because of, you know, career, professional reasons, social reasons. Uh, but, but by and large, I think I, I, I agree with you that like people, people do sort of hold sincere and authentic moral convictions and act on them. And, and again, yeah, that, those, that is intertwined with our social reputation, right? Because believing you're a good, if you want to convince others, you're a good person, it, it really helps to believe it yourself and to actually be a good person. That's the best way to do it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. So I am, uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, the luxury beliefs thing, I mean, I, I still sort of, it, it gives me, uh, I don't know. It just, it just is something about it strikes me that, you know, like, it seems to me that it seems to me that it is, I mean, parts of it are true that people believe things based on their class. They believe things to feel good about themselves. Um, and then at the same, but at the same time, they don't suffer the consequences of their beliefs. But I, I think that that's also like, like that's, that's all, that's all beliefs. And it's not like, I don't even know if there's like a systemic uh, average um, to, uh, you know, for people of like elite backgrounds to believe X, Y, or Z things that are bad for the lower class. I, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I think I could, you know, salvage the idea in my mind if it's like, you know, like the, the natural tendency is like if you're walking through a crime-ridden neighborhood is to like want more police and to like, you know, like you you can actually see what's, you know, the consequences. Maybe it gives you some kind of experience or like if you've seen broken homes, like maybe you have that experience that uh, someone else uh, doesn't, doesn't have. I think that's right. Um, I guess it would be a little bit different from, uh, you know, like uh, – you don't suffer the consequences. I don't know. It's just maybe it's just the terminology that sort of bothers me about like, you know, consequences of your beliefs when consequence of beliefs, but it's okay. I think there's a lot there. I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the, the articles on it. I enjoy reading your Rob. Uh, you have good reports, Zach, a lot of, a lot of good data too. Um, I think we've, we're coming up on an hour and a half uh, now. So let me just ask each of you guys, you know, what you sort of what you're doing now and what you're working on. So Rob, uh, what's next for you? Yeah, so I have my PhD uh, defense scheduled for October 31st, coming up soon. And yeah, so after that, my my main project in the new year, my, my book is coming out. We're thinking, what, probably spring... So somewhere around some sometime in 2023 so i'll spend most of most of my time after that sort of promoting the the book getting pre-order sales and sort of you know joining up interest there and otherwise yeah just keep keeping uh keeping up on on my sub stack and maybe maybe i'll uh i'll start a I'll start a podcast so i'll uh, i'll talk to you offline to get some some tips on that so i also have a sub stack i can i can tell you about i can tell you about that too uh, we should just say we're recording this on October 10th, so I don't. This will probably won't be released uh, before October 31st. So, uh, okay. you're listening to this in the future. Rob will already be a PhD, or he will have flunked out. They will have looked at his work <laughs> yeah. and said, "We don't want. We don't want you here anymore." So, yeah, this will. Uh, so, yeah, PhD dissertation defense coming up. You'll be Doctor Henderson. We can put that in the show notes. We can put, officially put that when we release this uh, episode. And the book is a, is a memoir, right? Of, it's a uh, memoir. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Memoir of my experiences in foster care and my sort of, you know, unusual uh, uh, journey to, to higher ed. So, Okay, we'll have to talk about it when it comes out. Uh, Zach, what's up with you? Moved to the big city. 
Uh, What's well, next? yeah, I'll be uh, moving up uh, to the tri-state area in uh, May. But before then, uh, right now, I am working with um, Eric Kaufman uh, on a project that attempts to estimate the uh, prevalence of uh, CRT instruction or exposure to CRT-related instruction in American uh, high schools. Uh, and um, that is uh, a uh, report which probably by the time uh, this podcast uh, releases, you'll at least probably the summary or the preview article, uh, it will then publish and you could read. Uh, the idea is to try to get some of this data out, uh, some of the analysis out before the midterm elections, because we feel like it is very important information for you know, those that care about these issues, at least to know about the extent, um, you know, of critical, you know, what extent are notions like privilege and systemic racism being taught in schools. And what we find in a nutshell is that they are far, uh, rates are far higher than, uh, you know, I, I guess the Democrat or the DNC <laughs> wants you to believe. Uh, so yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go, uh, yeah. You should preview yeah. a little bit of this to uh, me, and it's like we have we have no the school debate. Like we have no idea whether the stuff we're looking at, and like people are going to be upset about if they're even. Well, yeah, like, and here's a bright idea. Why don't we just ask stuff? kids? <laughs> Why don't we just ask them whether they were taught this? Yeah. You know, just last year when they were in high school. Uh, so that's essentially yeah, what yeah. we did. Um, and uh, another uh, uh, project that I'm juggling, uh, which actually uh, you know overlaps uh, significantly with this depolicing um, report is um, we're trying to do a much more elaborate study uh, that gets at the extent that the public overestimates uh, not only uh, lethal police force, you know, against uh, certain groups, but also even nonviolent, uh, you know, these nonviolent, um, or excuse me, non-lethal force against groups, and also people's perceptions of group criminality. Uh, you know, to what extent do uh, you, know, uh, you know, people perceive that most people in prison are there for nonviolent offenses. We're trying to get at that. We're trying to see whether potentially correcting those misperceptions, I have a lot of doubt, probably more doubt than an optimism, could potentially mod moderate any type of relationship between perceptions and policy preferences. Uh, so that should be keep me busy for uh, the rest of the year. Um, and um, yeah, that, that, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Um, one thing I will say, and I feel like this is important to say for those that are after this might go and read my report, it's not just about, I didn't write this report only to, you know, test Rob's luxury belief thesis and, and to respond to it. I also think it's important that we do not memory hole what happened in the summer of 2020, you know, and much like there was a Trump studies program and a, now there's a January 6 studies, you know, that come out in academia. I see this as kind of in that spirit of, Let's have a summer of Floyd studies. And this is kind of a way of getting <laughs> at what the hell happened uh, during that period. Because, you know, to be honest with you guys, it's, it's going to happen again. You know, maybe not next year, but it, it's going to happen again. And I think it's important to understand uh, some of the factors, uh, you know, um, well, at play. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. So this stuff, yeah. So we've had these inner city riots. They've occurred in cycles. We had them in the 1960s. Oh, the same issues. Like you go back to the 1960s, it was like some guy was like running from the police and like got killed. It's like the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, 1960s. We had the Rodney King. We had this like stuff in the 1990s, and then we have it uh, again. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not positing some kind of church and thing. Like I think that all that stuff is nonsense. Uh, the Peter Church and theory of like everything is single. Yeah. I, you know, I don't believe every that. every 30 but, years. But, <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's not exactly like yeah. that. But it's like there's this uh, there's this uh, there's this problem. There's this problem with inner city black communities. Um, it never gets solved, 
and it boils over uh, every now and then. And, and exactly. I don't know. I don't know. Like, you could do studies correcting people's beliefs on statistical disparities and and, and crime and law enforcement. I, I doubt that. I doubt it too. But it's worth a shot. It's worth a shot. It's worth a shot. I think I'm more optimistic than you, Zach. I think that can do a lot of good I, I, because you don't have to convince everyone's mind. You just have to convince the elites, and they are smart enough to understand that, right? Like. Well, that's I think, who, those are the people, right? I think the if you look back at the 1960s, ah, oh, maybe the, we, we might get into a whole other conversation again. But the 1960s, like the, the elites were completely united in being against rioting, um, and you know, then I'm talking like uh, you know LBJ and like these you know these like high end Democratic officials and like the New York Times. Like it wasn't you know it wasn't really you know if they did give support, it was like pretty subtle. Yeah, but the and, commission know, that came well, out, uh, what was the commission? I don't want to get into a whole long conversation. But the commission, yeah, but that was <laughs> they didn't the idea is, and John Scranton, yeah. as a sociologist, has written about this. The commission came afterwards. Like first, there was the riots, and then came like the intellectual justification. Like, oh, uh, oh riots okay. Are, are okay. <laughs> so the the history here, yes, is very uh, is very fascinating. But we don't want to. Yeah. Right. We, well, hopefully uh, you'll have me on to talk yeah, about yeah. the next riot, for, of course, <laughs> for another day. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. All right. Take care, Thanks, guys. Richard. Be well. Zach. This was fun.